You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. So uh, we are obviously in a series called Move, and uh, we have been talking about the the challenge to move out of our comfort zone into that place where we are stepping into someone else's life, where we are uh, moving across the room, across the street, across the sea, across the ocean, uh, out of our normal way of life into the life of somebody else to tell others about Jesus. Today, I want to talk about the greatest move in the history of the world. Before we ever thought about moving into somebody else's life, Jesus moved into our life. So today is actually the beginning of a holiday week. Anybody know what this week is called? Passion Week, Holy Week, goes by both names. Uh, This is called Holy Week starting today because this is uh, in in Christendom, there is a celebration almost every day. There is a uh, three major holidays from the day of Easter working back to the Sunday before. Today is known as Palm Sunday. Anybody know what Palm Sunday means? Anybody know what Palm Sunday means? You don't have to shout it out. Just curious. Palm Sunday is called Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about it here in a moment. Uh, It's the day that Christ entered into Jerusalem, and they laid palm branches down before him, and so that's called Palm Sunday. And this Thursday is is actually a holiday. It goes by different names, Maude Thursday, uh, Seder Thursday, Passover Thursday. It is uh, Thursday night represents the night that Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, and they took communion. And then there is Friday, known as Good Friday. It's probably... uh, one of the most significant and important holidays in the Christian world because it's the day that that recognizes the Friday before Sunday that Christ gave his life, shed his blood for us. And then, of course, on Sunday, we celebrate Easter, which is the resurrection of Christ. So I want to challenge you guys as we're going through Holy Week, as we're going through Passion Week this week, that you kind of remember as you go along, if you join the Facebook group, the Living Way Facebook group, I'll be posting some kind of devotional meditations for each day to kind of walk us through uh, the cross, to walk us to that place. Jesus knew the month. He knew the day. He knew the, he knew the exact hour. He knew the moment. He knew the second he was to die. And this is known as Passion Week. And the majority in the, of the Gospels, we have four Gospels. They're the first four books of the New Testament. Gospel means good, life-changing news. And those first four books of the the Bible, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they focus on this week right here. The majority of each one of those uh, letters and books is is about this one week. Everything else in those Gospels, from the birth to his teaching, leads to this week. We focus on Friday, and we're going to talk and walk to the cross today. But today I want to focus on those seven days leading up to Easter. I want to focus on the, the last week of Christ. I want, to, I want us to talk about seven days to live. So as we unravel and unpack the seven days, the last seven days before Easter, seven days to live, I want us to kind of take a look at the journey of Christ. Let me set the scene real quick. 
there is a holiday in in Israel to the Jerusalem uh, Jewish people to to the Hebrews that is that is extremely important. That holiday is called Passover. And if you're not really sure what Passover is, most of you guys know the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, right? Well, before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, they were slaves in Egypt. And then God sent Moses to to deliver those people and to lead them out of bondage and slavery into a new life, into a new home, into a new promise. And when he showed up in Egypt, the Pharaoh would not let them go. So God used Moses to release several plagues onto Egypt. And each one of them kind of made Pharaoh more angry until the last one, it broke his spirit. And it was known as the angel of death plague, where an angel of death was to hover over the entire, to go through the entire city of Egypt and the region. And Moses was instructed to tell the people that anybody who will Put the blood of a lamb on their doors. And if they will eat the the lamb fully and stay inside the door, then when that angel of death comes by, it will pass over their house and they will live. Well, they did just that. Many people did just that. And as the angel of death came through, the angel of death passed over anyone who had the blood of the lamb on their door. And when that happened, Moses Uh, had this message from Pharaoh. He was so angry. He wanted them out immediately. So he said, get out before I change my mind. And they ran out. They left. They didn't even leave time for their bread to rise. They took unleavened bread and they just took what they had and they hit the road, Jack. And they went all the way to the Red Sea. And you know, kind of what happens if the Red Sea parted and all that sort of thing. But that Passover, God said, you know what? That night when the angel of the Lord passed over, you're to celebrate for the rest of of your heritage until the promised one comes. And what you're to do is on Passover, celebrating the Passover that happened in your heritage's life, then you are to eat the blood, uh, you are to eat a lamb, and you are to uh, drink the fruit of the vine, which symbolizes the blood of the lamb, and you're to eat unleavened bread, which symbolizes the bread that they they did not have time to let rise. So it was this big reminder of their freedom from bondage. It was a big reminder that they were set free from slavery and bondage into a new life, into a new home, into a new promise. So here comes Jesus. It's Passover weekend in Jerusalem. And when it's Passover weekend in Jerusalem, the entire city shows up just by the hundreds of thousands. So as he's entering the city on the Passover week, it's Sunday. The city is packed with people. It's a yearly celebration, a massive holiday, 1,446 years of promised deliverance since the time of Moses. The city is full. People is everywhere. Here comes Jesus. It's Sunday. Jesus told his disciples, hey, go get a colt because I'm riding to town on a donkey, on a colt. So here's what they did in Mark 11. We see the story. It says, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the on the road in front of him, while others spread branches they cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which translated means save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna 
in the highest. So that is Palm Sunday. That's the picture. He rides into town. People are shouting, Hosanna to the king. Hosanna. You see, they thought that Jesus was coming to start a political revolution. They were convinced that Jesus was going to ride into town, go straight to the Roman authorities, and they knew he was a miracle worker. They knew that he had risen people from the dead and healed blind eyes, and they knew that he was able to make lepers whole again. He did miracles. Nothing could stop him. He was feeding thousands of people with a handful of loaves and fishes. Here comes Jesus. He's the one that will turn the world upside down and we will be a nation sovereign again. They were looking for Jesus to bring a political and a real world kingdom. You see, they were missing it because he wasn't coming for political reasons. He was coming for spiritual reasons. Jesus made it very clear that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom. It is a supernatural spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that's much, much greater than any kind of political figure or region. So he rides into town. He jumps off the colt. He walks through the town and he leaves. That's it. Big Sunday. He walks in. He leaves, and then he and his disciples, they travel outside of a uh, town to a place called Bethany where they camp out at a friend's house, and that's Sunday. So on Monday, it's a new day. They get up. They're walking into town, and on their way into town, they see this tree that's a fig tree, and it should have had figs, and they were, uh, figs. They were all hungry, and Jesus looked at the fig tree, and we're going to find out why he did this, but he looked at the fig tree, and he said, you know what? Because you should, have bear, uh, because you should bear fruit, and you're not cursed. Are you fig tree? to never bear fruit and you will die. So they were like, whoa, Jesus, <laughs> cool down, you know. <laughs> There's another fig tree, man. It's like, could you imagine you walk into McDonald's and they're like, we're out of Big Macs. Cursed you, McDonald's. Cursed you. You will die. You're like, what? Just, just order a quarter pounder, man, you know. Well, that's kind of what happened. And they're like, Jesus, whoa. You know, he cursed a fig tree and they went on into town. They didn't know what that was all about. Uh, he walks into town. He immediately goes into the temple. You guys know the story. He walks in. He looks around, and they're selling, you know, sacrifices. They're, they walk in, and they're changing money. They're they're doing tax stuff, and they're 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 selling objects in the temple. And and if you walk in during Passover, you're supposed to bring an offering, uh, a sacrificial offering, you know, a lamb, a goat, something precious. And uh, people were just coming empty-handed, and they were buying them right there in the temple. And he was furious. He's like, "In this." is not what the house of God is is about. You've turned it into den and a place of a, a den of thieves where people are profiting off the kingdom. So uh, you guys might know the story. He starts flipping over the tables, man. He starts, all right, he was already upset about the fig tree. You know, it's like some of you guys, your blood sugar is low and you guys go crazy. I, I don't think that's what was happening, but he hadn't eaten. He was mad about the fig tree. He comes in, man, he sees the, the just the corruption in the house of God, and he doesn't just flip over tables. And the Bible says he starts whipping people. He starts, man, he grabs a whip and starts whipping and chasing people out of the temple courtyard. He flips tables, and he stirs the pot, and then he leaves. That's Monday of Passion Week. On Tuesday, the next morning, the fig tree, they're walking out to Bethany, uh, from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they're passing by that fig tree, and the fig tree is not just not bearing fruit. It is shriveled up dead, completely dead. And they're like, oh, man, don't mess with Jesus, man. 
So the buzz gets around. He walks into town. You can imagine, what's he going to do today? Yesterday, man, he called out the Pharisees. Man, he called out the tax collectors. He called out those selling, you know, sacrifices in the temple. He's cursing trees. What is going to happen today? The buzz is out. Crowds begin to gather around Jesus. Um, what, is, what is he going to say? Uh, what is he going to do? So the crowds begin to gather. He's cornered by some religious people, the fat, uh, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. They corner him, and they start to drill him. They start to try to trick him, uh, but instead he turns it back on them, and he starts to teach, and he says that God desires nothing less than everything that you have. He doesn't want a piece apart. 99 and a half won't do. He's got to have all, all of your love. That's a song from the Beat Street soundtrack from 1980. I don't know if you guys remember that. 99 and a half won't do. Gotta have all, all of your love. I know you guys heard me sing that song before, but every time I get to that part where he says, you know what, nothing less than all, I think of that song because, you know, when even as a teenager, I realized God wants nothing less than everything that I have. So he begins to teach. He starts talking about, if you want to be my disciples, you come and follow me. You deny everything. You leave everything and you follow me. This is for real. This isn't about church attendance. This isn't about holiday attendance. This is about, you know what, you're either with me or, or you're not with me at all. He, he says, you're either following me, walking with me. Uh, you know, this, this is the real thing. So he preaches some pretty serious stuff, and that's Tuesday. On Thursday, which is the day before Passover, uh, the Bible doesn't say much of anything. Uh, we know that they are preparing for the Passover. We know that they're getting ready for the big Passover meal, and uh, they meet together. And on Thursday, uh, he talks and he preaches some on Wednesday and Thursday, and the things that he preaches about, he preaches from marriage to, uh, from marriage to money. He preaches from windows uh, about the window of heaven. And he preaches about the end of the age and the end of his life. Uh, he's already at odds with all the religious leaders, and he begins to throw personal attacks. And on the on the on the on the steps of the temple, he starts to call them snakes and vipers and demons, and says, "You're all going to places that uh, you never expected." And he's talking about eternity. We're going to talk about that in a second. And then he says, "You know what?" To his disciples, "You know that fig tree that I cursed?" He says, "That fig tree." He says, "That was Israel." Because Israel has called to do something great. They're not bearing that fruit, so they are and have been cursed. Um, now, that's a whole other theological d discussion of where Israel plays out today. Uh, I believe God has a plan for Israel just like he has a plan for every one of us. But that's what he said. So step by step, he's basically bringing everything to the point of the cross. He's leading everybody. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's drawing a, a line saying, you are either for me or against me. Uh, against me. You are either given everything that you have or you have not given anything that you have. He says, but you must decide. So he's leading them down a path, seven days to live. He's taking them to a point of no return. He's saying, basically, what are you going to do with me? And that's the question I want to ask you today. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is he going to be a footnote to your life? Is he going to be a check on a list? Is he going to be a spoke on a wheel? Or is he going to be the center of your life in whom all life makes clear the purpose of what you're here for? 
It was a perfect storm. The conditions, everything spiritually, politically, religiously, morally was building to a point in time, counting down to what he knew was to come, the cross. So there are five shocking statements I want to share with you real quick that he said during those last days leading to the cross. Five shocking statements. I want to focus on some of them. Let's focus on the last 72 hours. Uh, Mark chapter 12 through Mark 14 is what we're going to focus on. So Mark chapter 12, this is what he says. This is what happens. Jesus' favorite hobby, ripping on religious people. That's his favorite hobby. That's what he did probably more than anything else in public. Verse 38, he says, and he taught, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. He says, watch out for those who think they know everything. He says, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces. Don't you love children? I do. Might as well acknowledge it. I love children. All right. Verse 39, it says, uh, says that they like, verse 38, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace, 39, and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. He says, man, they love, they love getting priority. They love getting the esteem, the honor. They love, you know, people giving him the best places, the best seats, the best clothes. Uh, you know, they, they love all the parties. They, they love it all. Verse 40 says, they devour widows' houses for a show. And, and for a show, make lengthy prayers. You know, they like to get up front and say, Oh, Father. And one of those, you know, movies, you know, they just get out there and they wax. Uh, they, they preach as they're praying because they're not really praying. They're trying to show how spiritual, how awesome, how much they know the Bible. And they're just out there just kind of, you know, these long prayers to make themselves look good. And such men, he says, will be punished most severely. He says, imagine being in the crowd, man. Imagine being in a crowd, right? And these are, these are the guys who lead your church. All right. These are the, the Pharisees, man. They are experts in the law. The scribes, they were the guys that wrote the law. They didn't have copy machines. They had to write them by hand. And the scribes knew the law very, very well as well. They, but they just happened to be a little bit more liberal in what it said. The Pharisees, man, they were like ultra conservative. Uh, Sadducees uh, knew the Bible, but they were ultra liberal. And, but they were so arrogant proud. They knew everything and they liked to debate and discuss uh, with each other to show how smart and awesome they were. And here comes Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of thieves. You guys ain't nothing. You guys like to look good. You like to smell good. You like to talk good. You like to pray good. But let me tell you something. You are going to be punished by the father in a way you never imagined. Could you imagine being in a crowd? Hearing him say something like that, the, religi the religious leaders knew it all. And then they added rules on top of that. They added hundreds and hundreds of rules because apparently God's laws were not enough. They had to make it more difficult, more strenuous, more. Uh, they had to show that they were so committed by adding more guidelines and limits. See, the Pharisees would often say, look how good we are. It seems impressive as they were looked to as guides. But Jesus says this, this is number one. I want you to realize a shocking thing Jesus said. He said, guys, look at your Pharisees. 
He says, your pastor is going to hell. He said, guys, your pastor is going to hell. Now, I'm not talking about myself. All right, I, I love Jesus. I believe in the cross. He rose again from the dead. I'm good with Jesus, all right? I'm, I try every day to walk a journey with Christ that is honorable to him and uh, honoring to, to you. I'm referring to the pastors of the people in the Bible. He says, those leaders, those shepherds, those people, those guides, those Pharisees, they're going, they're going to hell. They're hypocrites and they are liars. And they have committed in another, in, in the book of John, he says they committed the unpardonable sin. You're like, what is that? Man, that sounds bad. Jesus said, man, you can, you can blaspheme the father. You can blaspheme me. You'll be forgiven. But man, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there's no hope for you. You are done. God has checked you off his lift list. You've committed the unpardonable sin. What does that mean? He says to the Pharisees, you guys, you look at me, God in the flesh. I'm doing miracles that only God can do. And you're going to look at me and tell me that I'm demonic and that I'm the devil. And he says, you are so cold hearted. God is done with you. He says, you know what? You can, you can talk about me. You can talk about the father, but when you mess with the spirit, there's no hope for you. And the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit is what draws us to the Father, convicts us of our sin. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit alone that we are able to confess Christ as Lord. So when the Holy Spirit is, is they, they were saying everything that Jesus did, the spirit he was moving under, everything was demonic and of the devil. And he says, you know what, you guys, are so, your heart is so hard, there's no hope for you. This is what he said in uh, Matthew. It's a longer version of the same event. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law. That's the scribes, the Pharisees, the theologians, the experts, all the, uh, you know, the pastors that they had. He says in the Pharisees, that's all the church leaders and stuff. He says, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter. He says, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Man, Jesus didn't mess around. The key word here is hypocrites. Can you understand why they were so ticked off at Jesus, right? He basically said, you're going to hell. They were angry. They were mad. They were in it for selfish reasons. They loved the honor. They loved the titles. They loved the parking spots. They loved the perks. But, you know, we like to rip on pastors, but you know what? The same applies to all of us in this room. And that is, what about you? When your spiritual life causes you to look down on others, you're not so spiritual. You're a Pharisee. So if somehow you think that you're better than the person behind you or in front of you, or if somehow you think you're better than me, or if I were to ever think I'm better than you, guess what? We've just joined the club. We've joined the Pharisee club. And woe, woe unto us. Then in Mark 12, he says, uh, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, he said, I, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, she got she gave out of her poverty, put in something. Uh, she put in everything, everything she had, all that she had to live on. 
And you can imagine it blew them away. You got to understand in the temple, there's 13 boxes all over the temple outside in the temple court. And these temple boxes were places where you would bring your offering, your financial offering. You bring, you would bring, you know, goats and sheep and lamb, but people were also instructed to bring financial offerings to the Lord to, to do the work of the kingdom and to maintain the temple and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, these 13 boxes were all over the temple and it was uh, something that God had uh, put in place to make sure that the kingdom can move forward on earth. And, uh, what the, what the Pharisees like to do and what some of the rich people like to do is they like to go to these, you know, these little coffers, you know, where the, 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 these boxes and they would drop in their money and they would go, Woo-hoo! hallelujah. You know, they would drop in Hosanna. They would ring bells and they would chime chimes and they would walk over there, clink, clink, clink. You know, they would layer themselves in bells and ornate sounds and they would drop it in and they would make sure everybody heard it. And they were making this noise. They were pouring in lots of money and they always wanted everybody to know. And here comes this, this widow. A destitute woman. See, a widow in the culture of Christ is a woman who had no future, who had no income, who had no hope. It was a very difficult culture for women who were without a husband at the time of Christ. That's why he had such a a deep heart and love and passion. The Gospels talk a lot about caring for the widow and for the orphan. That is because in their culture, these were people that seemed destitute, that had no help. And unless they were instructed, they were to help them. These were people that were had to live a life of poverty. So here she comes. She, she had a mite, less than a, a penny. Its value was small. It, was, it wasn't a fraction of what she had. It was everything she had. And she dropped it in there. And I want you to know this, is that we might say, you know what? She should keep it. You need it. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't go, whoa, 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 everybody. Hey, yo, widow, widow, come here. Here, why don't you just keep that? Here, here's some more. You know, he didn't do that. You know, if he was Jesus, he, he was Jesus. He's God on earth. He could have done anything he wanted, but he did not say, hey, lady, keep it. You need it. Guys, give her some money. But what he did is he silently pointed out to his disciples something of dynamic significance because what she gave was something that her heart was attached to. And it was something that symbolized uh, sacrifice. I want you to write this down. Is it a shocking thing about that Christ said that it means that God can't count, at least not the way that we count. God does not count the way that we count. You know, what, what, you know realistically, let's think about it. What's more helpful in our church? Because, you know, we're a church that's small. We have financial struggles. What's more helpful? If one of you were to give a dollar or one of you were to give $100,000, what's more helpful? A hundred thousand. Thank you. Any one of you feel free to give a hundred thousand dollars. But in reality, that's what we think. We think that's more value. But in the in reality, God does not count the way we count because the widow had given more. You see, we count how much we give. God counts how much we sacrifice. And that's important. That's, that's in life. That's in our offerings. That's in how we treat others. That's in how we live. We count how much we give. God counts how much we sacrifice. They were giving out of aptitude, but she was giving out, out of a faith attitude. You know, when we often look at money, we often think that somehow our spirituality is attached to our money. And, and 
yes and no, because it is not about the dollar. It's about the devotion. But I want you to realize this. We uh, have been giving, given money and we think that somehow that's the way that God has given us things to bless us. But in reality, everything we give, he's given to us in order to bless others. When we have money, we often think, well, God is blessing me. And when we don't have money, we think, God, where are you? You're not blessing me. What have I done wrong? You see, we need to get out of this mentality that somehow our financial possessions mean spiritual blessing. We cannot judge our spiritual life on our material blessings. And that's a big part of what Jesus was saying. He says, you know what? She gave more because it was a sacrifice and it shows the deeper level of her faith and her devotion to the Lord. And it's not about your possessions and she is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see God. Jesus turned to everything we think about possessions, popularity, and esteem, and material things upside down. Here's the next thing he said. On the way out of the temple, he just said all these things. They're like, whoa, man, this is crazy. This temple, by the way, that he was walking out of was layered in gold. This was known as Herod's temple. That means it was a remodeled temple that was built from Ezra and Nehemiah. The Ezra and Nehemiah temple that was right at the end of the Old Testament, it was like this little dinky thing. Here comes Herod. He does like massive remodeling, and he makes it one of the largest temples on the planet at the time. It was one of the most costly, most expensive. It was layered in gold inside and out. The items, the objects, the furniture, all layered in gold. Its platform, the temple mount was massive. The support walls were uh, like any, like nothing you've ever seen. It was uh, definitely one of the great wonders of the world. So they, they're walking out of the temple with Jesus, and they're like, yeah, Jesus, man, this is pretty awesome, isn't it? This is what he said, Mark 13, when he says, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building, right? Right? Isn't that awesome, right? Um, one of the world, man, layered in gold, man. Jesus says, yeah, man, this is awesome. No, that's not what he said. This is what Jesus said. He goes, do you see? All these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now that immediately was a was a reason for him to be arrested and tried and put in prison. Because he was making a public declaration that this temple, this monument to their faith, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish people, that this monument that was, you know, passed down from David to Solomon and then torn down and rebuilt, you know, by Ezra and Nehemiah. He says, man, this thing, it's all coming down. And he says, some of you standing here, you're going to see it. Some of you standing here, he says, you're not going to die before you see it come down. This generation will not pass away until you see this coming down. And I'm sure they were like, furious. In fact, the Pharisees immediately began to take up offense, began to accuse him. And let me tell you something, exactly 40 years from the time of his resurrection, that temple was seized by the Roman government and it was torn down and it was a violent assault. The blood of the innocent filled the streets of Jerusalem and not a single stone was left standing. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, they have that wailing wall where they're praying and they're praying and waiting for that temple to be rebuilt. Well, currently there's a Muslim mosque on that temple mount where the temple was. They're going to have to have war with Islam and tear down that temple for that temple of God to ever be built. So if that's what you're hoping for, well, I can't imagine why anybody would ever hope for that kind of thing. Um, but that wall that they well at was not even a temple wall. It's a retaining wall for the mound, the temple mound, but it's all that was left. So they're praying 
but it came down. I want you to write this down. This is number three is that God does not desire buildings. He desires our bodies. Systems are not what he desires. He desires our life. Some things need to be torn down, even sacred things. Church traditions, even meaningful ones, are never to replace our life of worship in Christ. And a lot of times we become so liturgically oriented or so traditionally oriented or so, you know, some sort of church-wise, culturally oriented that, that God is saying, you know what, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things, but if they get in the way of your life and me and your life and others, those sacred cows, those things need to come down. There's not a single greater example of a sacred monument on the planet like the temple of God. But God said, you know what? It has become a place of corruption. Its whole purpose has been twisted and as beautiful and dynamic and expensive and wealthy as symbolic as it is, it's coming down. It's because God does not want a building. He doesn't want a, a, a actual, you know, brick and mortar. He wants heart and soul. He wants people. He wants you to be his building. The Bible calls you the temple of the Holy Spirit. When he said this, the leaders hated it. They even brought it up at his trial. They said, oh, you're going to destroy the temple. How are you going to do that? Disciples, uh, the disciples asked him when, and after describing what it would look like, he tops it off with this in Mark 13. He says, uh, no one knows about that day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father basically saying, you know what? I submit this information to the father's will. And he says, verse 33, be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. You guys need to circle. No one knows the day or the hour and you do not know when the time will come. So he says, it's going to be like a man going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. And he tells uh, the one at the door to keep watch. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know, circle that again, you do not know uh, when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Uh, but if he comes suddenly, uh, do not let him find you sleeping. I'll tell you that. He says, uh, what do I say to you? He says, then I'm going to tell everyone. He says, watch, which means just be ready. Guys, let me tell you something. He was uh, talking primarily about the destruction of the temple. But one day the Bible says he's coming back. And we don't know when. And we don't know how. And here's what Jesus said. I want you to write this down. He was saying, you know what, guys, your prophecy conferences, they're a waste of time. He says, I want you to know this. We are on the welcoming committee. We're not on the planning committee. Jesus says, you know what? You're not on the programming committee. You're on the welcoming committee. It's not up to you to know when. You're just to be ready. You're just to watch and be ready. It might come tomorrow. It might come hundreds of years from now. As sure as he came the first time, he's coming again. And he says, you don't know when. You don't know how. But I'll tell you what. Watch. Be ready. Because you don't know when. And when he comes, you need to be not sleeping. Does not mean that we don't study about the Bible or the end times. But it means that we do not try to focus on the when and how. Uh, it's because we do not know. Jesus said you will not know. In fact, don't buy my seven book series on the book of Revelation. I don't have one. <laughs> but you don't need it, even if I had one. We like to get those books and those charts. We're so fascinated with the mysteries of Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. What does it all mean? Just look at the newspapers. Just look at world events. Look at terrorism. You know what? Just look at Jesus. Just 
look at Jesus because you don't know when, but be ready. Some of you guys, well, I'm watching because I want to be ready. You know how you be ready? Not by watching and then getting yourself together when it looks like it's coming time. You just live ready. You live like it's happening in the next hour. That's how you be ready. That's how you live. That's how you watch. So you go, well, that means you watch the news and you get ready. No, you live ready. You be ready. He says, don't, don't focus on the times, on the time of how it's going to look and be, because you don't know the time and when, just be ready. Here's another thing he says, as Wednesday was coming to an end, Mark 14, he says, now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away, the Passover. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. They said, we don't want to do it during the great, during the holiday. People are going to go crazy. It's going to, it's a sacred holiday. People will be upset. So it says, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, uh, a previous leper, by the way, Jesus healed him. And uh, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, not lard, nard, okay? Uh, pure oil, exotic, you know, just perfumed oil. So she broke the jar, she poured, uh, poured the perfume on his head. It is estimated that the jars at that time and that nard, that perfume was worth about $40,000, okay, in, uh, in our standards. So it says uh, some of these present were saying indignantly to one another, uh, why this waste of perfume? What a complete waste of money. Uh, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money could have been given to the poor. I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's a pretty good point, right? What a waste Jesus is here to, to, to give life and to, 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 to serve and to care for. He's here to give his life. But along the way, man, he's teaching us how to care for the poor, how to reach out to those who are being mistreated. And, uh, you, know, and you know, they started saying, Jesus, isn't this kind of a waste? Well, and they began to rebuke her harshly. I want you to notice that they. We like to pin this on on uh, Judas, because we're going to find out Judas kind of, well, this was the last straw for him. And he, he stomps out uh, at this point and he makes a deal with the Pharisees. But it says they began to rebuke the woman. That means they were saying, hey, get off your feet. Come on. Don't waste that. Stop, stop, stop. Jesus, tell her to stop. They be, the group began to rebuke her. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with me. You can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Okay, it seems kind of cold maybe if you thought about it. You think, well, the, 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 the poor need it. If it was up to us, we might, hey, say, you know what? That's a great, man, I appreciate your heart, woman. Man, what a, how precious. Isn't that precious, Jesus? That's precious, guys, right? That's, you know what? Why don't you just anoint him with a little bit? you know, maybe a few hundred dollars worth. And then, you know what, why don't you donate that, put that in the offering and we're just, we're, we can reach a lot of people for that. You know, we, we could have, you know, we might've stopped her and they said, thank you, but you know, the rest should be for the poor. And you know what? Our response would have been right. If it was about you and me, because you and I, we're not worth it, but he is. So here comes Jesus. He says, you know what? You're not me. 
I'm not going to be around all the time. What she's done is beautiful, and I want you to write this down. This is a shocking thing he says. He says, everything, it's all about me. It's all about me. Everything. There's not a thing. There's not a possession. There's not a person. It's about me, Jesus, he says. Jesus says it's all about me. He says we want life to be about us. We want Jesus to help us, to help uh, our life to be better. You know, we think somehow that Jesus is here to, to make life better for us. And to give us, you know, hope when we don't have hope and healing when we don't have healing and money when we don't have money and, and forgiveness when we need forgiveness and somehow fix our friendships and fix our marriage and fix our kids. And somehow Jesus is here to help us. And Jesus says, you know what? It's not about you. Jesus is saying everything in life, everything you have, it's about me. One guy in particular there thought differently. This was the straw that broke the camel's back in verse 10 in Mark 14. It says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he got up and left and he, and he went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and they promised to give money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. He saw Jesus do amazing, amazing things, but he just didn't get it. He was not there for Jesus he thought Jesus was there for them. He thought Jesus was there to change the political status, to build an earthly kingdom, to somehow make sure nobody ever went hungry and that nobody had, you know, a lack of clothes and that people that were unjustly treated were always done right. You know, but Jesus says, you know what? In this life, you will have troubles, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. He says, it's about me. I mean, Lucifer, he says, man, I want to be like God. Adam and Eve, they said, I want to uh, know better, and I know better than God. And then here comes Jesus, I will control God. You know what they all had in common? I. They all thought it was about them. So I want you to realize this. Jesus either moves in as Lord of all or he doesn't show up at all. This is the big picture of these crazy statements, these outlandish, radical, extreme statements. Jesus says he either moves in as Lord of all or he doesn't move in at all. He doesn't do the, the consulting gig. So the last five days, we're all moving to this next moment. They just handed uh, Judas some money. They were making a deal on when it was going to go down. The line was drawn. Jesus says, I'm the center of it all. What are you going to do with me? Jesus knew his days were numbered. Heading into town just a week later, he knew exactly what was going on. The Sunday Palm Sunday, heading into town. This is what he told his disciples in Luke 18. Jesus took the disciples aside and he says, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples, they didn't understand any of this. See, they didn't even understand it when he died on the cross. It didn't resonate with them until he walked out of that tomb right back into their living room. So Jesus and his disciples, after the meal, they go to the garden to pray. And I want to walk you through the last moments of the cross. They head to the garden to pray. And there, as they're praying, he is calling out to the Father, saying, Father, your will be done in all of this. He knew exactly what was about to come upon his life within the next 12 hours. He knew exactly what was going to be happening. 
He said, Father, your will be done. And as they're praying, Judas shows up. He didn't have a photograph. He couldn't say, this is Jesus. He couldn't say, you know, he's the one with the white cloak on because he didn't know exactly what Jesus was going to be wearing that night after he went to pray in the cool of the night in the Jerusalem Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't know. So he says, here's what I'm going to do, soldiers. I'm going to go up and I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. See, that is a common greeting around the world in many cultures. He says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to kiss him. And when I greet him and say, hello, master, he says, that's the one. That's Jesus. So immediately he comes into the, to the garden. Jesus is done praying. He walks up to Jesus, Jesus, my Lord, how are you? And he kisses him and immediately he is arrested. A fight breaks loose between the soldiers and and Peter. Jesus says, Peter, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And he heals a soldier's ear. About midnight when he is arrested, illegally arrested, he is taken, he is beaten, he is mocked, and he is put on trial. And as he is put on trial, they begin to take him through a series of seven trials some of them before the sun even came up. In that first trial, they take him before the uh, Ananias. Uh, he was the chief uh, priest at the time, and they began to make a case against him. He hated Jesus and began to condemn him and bring up false witnesses against him. They went to a second trial. They brought him up before Caiaphas, who's the, 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 uh, the second man in charge, the second priest in charge. And they began to bring people who Jesus healed and touched into the scene. They began to say, you're going to tear down this temple? Who do you think you are? What are you going to say now? These people began to lie about Jesus. People who he did miracles for, began to lie against Jesus. And by 3 a.m., they brought the entire Sanhedrin court, all of the local priests and the elders and the Pharisees together, and they began to, in a court style, put him to court and sentence him to death. But this is what was happening in Mark 14. He says, but Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Do you think you are the Christ? which means the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament. Do you think you're the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Do you think you're really God in the flesh? Do you really think you're the Savior, God, in the flesh? And Jesus said, I am. That's all he said. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming in the clouds of heaven. He says, man, you're, that means judgment. That is a reference to Ezekiel and is a reference to Isaiah where Jesus is quoting the Old Testament where he says, you will see the Messiah coming in the clouds. It's a symbol. It's a sign of judgment. He says, you're going to see me coming to judge you. And immediately they were furious. They began to rip their clothes and beat their chest and scream at him. And they began to beat him. They began to beat him with rods. They, they pulled his beard out of his face. They spit on his face. They began to mock him and call him names. And they said, this is enough. This is all we need. He's a blasphemer. He says he's God. He's, he's going against everything we ever teach. He must die. They throw him in jail by six o'clock. He's drug around to a series of additional court cases. By this time, he's taken before Pilate by 6 a.m. Pilate says, I don't see what the deal is. I don't even know who you are. You look like a vagabond. You look you look like a, some sort of a homeless man. Why do they want to kill you? Are you who you say they are? Who is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? And if that's where Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus says, you're looking at it. Pilate says, I don't even know who this guy is. 
His wife's told him, don't do anything with them because there's something special about them. I had a nightmare that something bad was going to happen if you hurt him. Pilate says, I don't know if I want anything to do with them. I'm just the governor. Send him to the local authority, the king, Herod. So they send him over to Herod, and that's the next trial at 7 a.m. They take him to Herod. Herod was, was a guy who was Jewish, but he lived like he was Roman. The Jewish people hated him. He lived very flamboyantly, very wealthy, very rich. The people did not like Herod. That temple, he's the one he and his dad built on. I mean, they love lavish gold. They're like the TBN folks. They're like, there's gold everywhere. And he looks at him, and Jesus wouldn't even talk to him at all. He's like, I'm not even going to talk. I'm not even going to give you the respect to even answer a single question. Herod was so mad that Jesus wouldn't talk to him that he kicked him out. And he says, I don't even want to see him. I don't care what you do with him. So after he went to Herod, they took him back to Pontius Pilate at 730. By 730, they had come to a turning point. It was up to Pilate now. And he decided that if, if we are going to do something with this Jesus guy. We've got to make it extreme. And maybe if we, if we abuse him and beat him and scourge him and, and whip him and tear his flesh apart just short of death, maybe the people will just leave him alone. So the Bible says that Pilate sentenced him to a scourge. And they began to, to violently beat him and whip his flesh and bones off of his skin with what's called a cat of nine tails, a very common form of torture during the time of Christ. It was kind of a, a whipped handle with, with nine leather straps. And on each leather strap was a bone or a piece of metal or a rock or something sharp and nailed. And they would whip Jesus. It was very common to scourge prisoners. And when they did it 39 times, they thought it was just Enough to keep him alive without killing him. So the Bible says he was whipped 40 minus 1, which means he was just barely kept alive. And then he dragged Jesus before the crowd and he says, all right, now, is this enough? Is this enough? The final trial, trial 7, it was a public tribunal. Is this enough? And they had another prisoner there and it was tradition to release a prisoner. The other prisoner was a known criminal, violent, vile person. And by the way, we know him as Barabbas. But guess what? The original says his name was Jesus of Barabbas, Yeshua Barabbas. So he's saying, and Barabbas means son of the father. Bar Abba, the son's, the father's son. So he says, Jesus, the father's son, Barabbas. Or Jesus, the Father, Son, Jesus. Which one do you want to, for us to let go, to release on this holiday? And the Pharisees were out in the crowd and they were conspiring against Jesus. And they began to say, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. And he says, which one do you want? And the crowd began to say, crucify Jesus, crucify, crucify. What? He says, well, who do you want me to let go? And they shouted, Barabbas. What shall I do with Jesus? Crucify! They began to shout. Pilate, knowing that as the governor, he was there to keep the peace and to prevent a riot, he immediately commissioned a bowl of water over where he washed his hands, symbolically saying, I've only done what the people have asked. I wash my hands in this. And at that moment, Jesus 
was forced to walk his cross down the way of suffering known as the Via Della Rosa. He was taken from that courtroom and he was made to carry the cross that he was to be nailed to. He bore his own cross as far as he humanly possibly could. One of the gospels says that just short of the cross, he collapsed and they called another person just to help Jesus carry it the rest of the way. He carried his cross through the town, through the streets of the Via Della Rosa, outside the city gates to a place called Galgotha, which means place of the skull. And there at the place of the skull, Jesus already abused, beat, whipped, barely alive. They began to hammer his hands and feet into the cross. Now, I want you to understand crucifixion, even in today's standard, is considered one of the most violent, vile forms of death anyone has ever conceived. The Romans were experts in defining death and torture. I mean, they thought it was humane to cut a head off. See, if you were a Roman citizen and you were sentenced to death, they cut your head off because that's the humane way to die. But if you were not a Roman citizen, then they would find these long, terrible, abusive, violent ways for you to die. Usually it would take up to three to four days for a crucifixion where they would nail a criminal up on a tree or up on a pole or up in certain death sentence locations and they would nail them to the cross, nail them to that tree, nail them to that post and they would leave them there to suffocate to death and to be picked alive by wild animals and birds. Sometimes it was not uncommon outside of the town to find these rows of crucifixion trees and posts and crosses where there would be bones at the bottom as they would be picked raw by vultures and birds of prey and wolves and wild animals. But this was an execution that was different. He was crucified with two criminals, as you know, But Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be sinless, so that we might have life. As they began to drive those nails into his hands and into his feet, they began to lift him up on that cross. And at 9 a.m., they nailed him to the cross his hands and his feet. And they had placed a crown of thorns on his head as a mockery, as, as to make fun of him, some kind of king you are. Three-inch thorns crammed into his skull. He's already torn apart from the scourge. He hadn't slept in, in 24 hours. He's drowning in his own blood and, and, and water in his, in, his, in his lungs. And he's bleeding out everywhere. People are mocking him. I want you to realize this. Jesus at any moment could have pulled his hands off and healed his own body just like he healed the leper. He could have at any moment as God on earth called down a legion of angels to condemn every soldier and every judgmental critic and mocker that was present. But he chose to retain 
in his humanity, fully human, fully God, he chose to retain the ability to experience every single drive of that nail. He chose to experience and to feel every thorn in his head. He chose to embrace and feel every single scourge on his back and beating that he took in his face. He chose to do this. At 12 o'clock, total darkness covered the earth from 12 to 3 as the weight of the world rests upon his shoulders. Past, present, future, Jesus was bearing it all. And at 3 o'clock, Jesus cries out some of the most important words you'll ever hear in the Bible. Lama, lama, sabachthani. Eli, Eli. He cried out, Father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22, which was a passage that not says God has abandoned me, but God, you are faithful. I'm here to fulfill scripture. Read that Psalm. And it unwraps the entire brevity of the cross in one chapter of Psalm. And then at the end of that three o'clock hour, he cries out, it is finished which in the original means paid in full. The debt has been paid. Our sin had been purchased. We have been bought back for those that believe. He cried, it is finished. Moments later, he gave his life and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last breath and he died. His life was not taken. His life was given. I want you to understand this. The cross is tragic, but not a sad story. It is victorious. It is morbidly horrible and wonderfully beautiful at the same time. It's God who is, yes, illegally convicted and tried and crucified, but the crime was not his. It was yours. It was your sin. It was your shame. It was your rebellion that he chose to embrace so that we would never have to bear that kind of punishment. At 3 p.m., he cried out and he gave up his life and he dies. At 6 p.m., by sunset, they hurried to bury him in a borrowed tomb of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea and a guy named Nicodemus next week at Easter. So he lays him in the tomb, but it didn't end at the cross. And some of you, you might be wondering, why is it called seven days to live? We only cover five days to the cross. Well, that's because it's on the seventh day that you live. On the day that he lives is the day that we live. And it's seven days to our life, seven days to the time that we get to live. See, when they arrived at the tomb on that seventh day, they were greeted first by angels and then by Jesus himself. And he said, I told you, I told you so. I told you, I told you that I must suffer. And I told you that I must die. And I told you that I must rise again. This is what we're going to do in a moment. We're going to take communion, but I want to challenge you. You know, I'm using a handheld mic here, and I wasn't able to fully illustrate all the things I was hoping to, but I want you to know something. This is your day. This is your day. God brought you to this moment for right now so that you might acknowledge and understand who Christ is, so that you might understand and recognize who Christ is. This is your moment. Everything in your life has led you To this moment, the cross has drawn a line in the sand for you. And the question is, what will you do 
with Jesus. I want to read two verses. I want us to pray. We're going to watch a video and we're going to take communion this morning. I want to explain that to you here in a moment. But John 6:40 says this, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. I want you to focus on that word that says, everyone who looks to the son and believes in him. You see, just because Jesus died doesn't guarantee we're all going to heaven. We must respond to the cross. That's what it says in, in John 1.12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a child of God. You are a creation of God who he loves, but we become his children when we become followers of Christ who were reborn, not of blood. That means it's not something that's passed down, nor of the will. That's not, it's not something that you can just determine. It's something the spirit determines or of the flesh. It's not something you can try really hard to get done, nor of the will of man, but it's of God. This is a God thing. So when I, what I want to ask you to do is I want you to take a moment to recognize who Christ sees you as and that it would have been us on the cross if it hadn't been for Christ. When you begin to see who you are through the eyes of Christ, it begins to change everything on how you relate to life and how he took that first move for us. He moved from heaven to earth to teach us and to show us his life. And then he moved from this earth to the cross. Then he moved from the cross to the grave. And next week, we're going to talk about the final move he made. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are here with us this morning. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand your will for our life and what you have for us, God, I pray. God, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, as their Lord, God, I pray that today would be the day that they look to the cross, that they find you as King and Lord of all. God, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that today would be a day that changes them forever. Heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you to do something very simple. I want you to take a moment to talk to Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus today? The line has been drawn. This life is about knowing him and walking with him. God, help us to embrace your will for our life and what you have for us. God, I pray that you'd help us to recognize that we need you, that we are sinners. God, that we have all fallen short. God, help us to realize that it's time for us to, to recognize our need for you. God, that we need to turn from ourselves and turn to you. If you're sitting here right now, I want you to just to think about it. I want you to talk to God for a moment. If you need to confess your sin before Christ right now, just go ahead and confess your sin. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Go ahead and tell him, Jesus, wash me clean. God, wash me. I want to start over. I want to begin again. Thank you for the cross that that washed me white as snow, God, that cleansed me, gave me a new start. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.